Hello and welcome to Top in Tech, a global council podcast. This is the latest in our monthly series with the leading decision makers and thinkers on tech policy and regulation. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Theo Blackwell. Theo is the Chief Digital Officer for London and in that role he oversees digital transformation data and smart city initiatives at London City Hall. He's been in post since 2017 and he's previously served as a councillor in the London Borough of Camden and he's worked at UKI, which is the UK's trade association for the video gaming industry. Theo has been recognised with an MBE for his contribution to local government digitisation and he's a leading authority on local digitisation policy and implementation. Theo, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. We have been remiss on this podcast in that we have covered public sector digitization extensively, but only at the national level. We have neglected, like I suspect you'll go on to say too many people do, the story of public sector digitization and data-led projects at the devolved, regional, municipal and local level. So hopefully the two of us can make amends uh, for that today. And there's two aspects where I'd really like to get your views on. So the first is just a bit of a state of play about where things stand, both in London, but also your broader view around the local government digitization state of play, but also where that can be improved and where we can get a leap forward in the coming years. And the second is just to talk through some of the trade-offs that are implied by digitizing public services, the most obvious one being around privacy and data protection, but not just limited to that. So if that sounds good to you, mm-hmm. when I was researching this podcast, I read some of your recent articles, as is my duty to do so. One described TFL as a tech innovator with a proud track record over 20 years, going back to the congestion charge. Another said that to, and I quote here, to give more agency to local government is essential to tap into the vast amount of data it possesses. So the first statement was very positive. The other implied a lack of progress or is still work to do. So could you just help me reconcile those two statements and give me your view on how you see the status quo of local government digitization? It's a fundamental challenge if this country wants to embrace data and artificial intelligence, that we reach beyond Whitehall and central government and look at the further digital transformation Uh, and unlocking of data that's held at a local level. So taking the uh, two statements I've made, Transport for London, fantastic innovator. Uh, Go back to uh, its creation. Uh, You've got the congestion charge, which really is a smart city play five years before the term was even coined. Cameras, national database, payment mechanism, purpose, uh, which was the reduction of congestion. And obviously, there have been various iterations of that, uh, most recently, the uh, ultra-low emission zone. Uh, Transport for London has, as the biggest transport authority in Europe, has been able to do other forms of innovation with data, such as opening up its live data feeds as open data, which powers Google Maps. It powers uh, City Mapper and uh, obviously uh, trans- TFL Go, which is uh, Transport for London's own app, and many, many others. That data being open has enabled innovation. It's enabled people to change the way they do things in their daily lives, and it's encouraged people to use public transport more and more uh, to plan their journeys. There are other 
forms of innovation that Transport for London have done, most notably open innovation. So setting a call to the tech sector uh, to bring in its capabilities to solve a problem uh, that the Transport Authority has um, has set out. So all in all, Transport for London actually has a pretty solid and enviable track record that other cities across the world often come to us to often come to TFL uh, for their expertise, advice and guidance. But let's remember that Transport for London is a really big regional authority. It spans a population of 9 million people and it deals with millions and millions of users each and every week. London looked at it from another angle is also 32 boroughs, each with their own uh, sovereignty and own innovation track record. Each borough is between 250,000 and 300,000 people strong. So that's approximately the same size as a Pittsburgh or a New Orleans. So a almost like a city uh, in its own right, if you're going to put it in the North American context. So the challenge for us at City Hall is how we ensure being a strategic authority, different from how other cities in the world are governed. Uh, we deliver very few uh, direct services to citizens. They are mostly done in the United Kingdom by these local authorities. How we make sure that we get the benefits of scale. Transport for London is an example of how a city the size of London has seized the benefits of scale by doing all of these things with data and also smart ticketing, contactless travel and so on. But how to get different municipalities working together, using their data to create better insights, new products and services when they are basically uh, independent from one another. Now, without going into the peculiarities of UK local government, which many people find a strange beast, the same challenge applies if you are a US city or you are a European city within a region. In that, in order to understand issues like air quality, mobility, the circular economy, poverty, or uh, climate change mitigation, or range of these issues, what you have to do is act not just as a city, but also act in concert with the towns and cities around you. Los Angeles is surrounded by 80 towns and cities. For it to understand the impact uh, that it has and to provide uh, solutions for the residents that travel in and out of its area, it has to understand that wider geographical area. So the issue of collaboration and how we use data, it doesn't really matter on the size or the uh, way in which your local government is structured, but it is fundamentally important because the more data you have, the more you are able to do with it. And our challenge here in London is to ensure <laughs> that we have a um, a way in which we can bring that data together for further innovation, because it is, of course, the fuel of that innovation. Right. So you said to realise our potential here, we need to look beyond Whitehall. <laughs> but if I can just take you back to Whitehall for a second, we've got an election likely next year in the UK. What are the main areas of reform that you would recommend to an incoming government to the national data strategy, particularly with a view of a Labour government? Are there things that you think that a future government should be doing with regards to what you've just set out with local and regional government that could be capitalised more 
in order to fulfill the potential that you've just set out. Okay, why is local government data really important? It's really important because it contains a huge amount of transactional data from citizens, from your uh, rubbish collections to your housing to your free school meals, uh, to your adult social care, uh, uh, children's social care, and so on and so forth. It has a huge amount of information that can give greater insight for decision makers, and it can also be used at scale to remodel and change business practices. So we move away from business as usual, which is becoming increasingly strained at the moment through years of uh, budgetary pressures, And it can open the way to new practices and new innovation. The challenge we have with government, with Whitehall, is that when it sets out a national data strategy and talks about government, it means Whitehall. It doesn't mean all of government. It has a blind spot to local government and a blind spot to the wealth of data that is held in municipalities right across the country. And it also has a, when it does talk about data, it talks about the data flow between local government and itself in Whitehall, rather than between local authorities. And that's really where I'm trying to get at, is that to have a proper national data strategy, what we need to do is make joining up data between local authorities, between local authorities in the NHS, easier to do, and obviously safe, legal, and responsible so that we can innovate more. And uh, at the moment, the government's track record on this is pretty deficient. And indeed, you can just look at the recent AI announcement of the AI task force and the AI experts that are going to be employed at number 10 Downing Street to have, again, a, a restatement of this view that government is Whitehall rather than government being the partnership, if you like, um, between Whitehall and local government for the governing of the country. Data is fundamental to both. Do you think that comes from a a lack of acknowledgement, a lack of willingness to engage with local government, some sort of cultural mismatch, a sort of inward looking culture or is it something more simple that the people in number 10 want to focus on what they can do and what not focus on the levers that they can't pull which will be obviously the levers that local councils or local mayors get to pull i mean i think there's a syndrome when you get into government you probably think you're at the center of things i thought also think there's a misunderstanding about how innovation comes about and how new digital services and how new business models come about there is also a fundamental lack in understanding of, of, of a really, really important question, which is how are our public services delivered? And what's the technology estate that's behind that? How's data treated within that technology estate? Those questions are like fundamental to any organisation, whether it's public sector or private sector. But fundamentally, if you ask the government this question what technology powers local public services, it wouldn't be able to give you the answer to that question. It wouldn't be able to tell you about market dominance. It wouldn't be able to tell you about um, how easy it is for scale-ups to enter the market. It would certainly wouldn't be able to tell you that in certain verticals, social care, housing, planning, that effectively they've been locked up by 
particular vendors for some time. And that has created a real hurdle in our ability to share data because contracts make it expensive to share your own data when you're a local authority. Um, and it's also led to a kind of de-skilling of the local government IT workforce who have effectively become, in many senses, contract managers of outsourced products rather than people who are able to do dynamic things with data to serve their residents. And that's where a new government needs to get to. It needs a new national data strategy. And by that, I don't mean let's write another strategy. I mean, I kind of do, but I, I mean, it is a proxy for leadership that to really get to AI for good, AI for civic benefit, what we need to do is have leadership to understand the problem and unlock all of this data um, so that we can make the most of it. Now, there's a really, really strong level of um, progress, really strong progress that's uh, happening in the NHS with the patient care record. And that is enabling administrative changes and a smoother experience for patients and the opening up of research and commercial opportunities with patient data. Imagine if alongside that, you were also able to free up data around place, around housing, around social care, um, all of the data that local authorities have. You would be able to drive more insights within the services themselves and then crucially between those services. One of the fundamental challenges facing public services in this country is the relationship between health and social care. And yet still, we haven't made enough progress in putting the local side into that equation. Every week almost you hear a new member of the shadow cabinet say, with the obvious problem, we've limited fiscal room for manoeuvre, but they want to do something impactful on public services. And they talk in sort of quite high level terms around the potential for AI to transform some of these services. But going back to what you were saying, if you want, if you're Peter Kyle in the DSIP brief or you're Jonathan Ashworth in the Shadow Cabinet Office brief, surely they the, to to reform the public services in the way in which we're talking about, whether it's healthcare or education and various other services, getting access to that local government data is key. But if you're saying it's locked down and contractual ends, what is the solution here? Is it some form of legislative, open banking, open smart data, open data sort of solution to force as a forcing function? to open up these data sets. Yeah, I, th I certainly think uh, we need to look at the way in which the big market players who, who dominate the space um, set up their contracts, and maybe that's uh, something that Digital Markets uh, Authority can look at. There's certainly a case for that to happen because it hasn't happened, and it's a major, major obstacle on... The, you know, on the constructive side, uh, organisations such as the London Office of Technology and Innovation, uh, which we set up here in London, have produced contractual terms that would allow the mandating of APIs, which allow you to easily share the data uh, in these new contracts. Um, so I think, yes, there's a there's a spotlight that only government can can put on on the issue. We've also seen in other sectors such. Uh, as, as you rightly say, open banking, where the introduction of industry standards into this and then championed by government um, 
have radically changed the user experience here. Now, it's slightly different from open banking because, of course, uh, lots and lots of beneficiaries of open banking are customers themselves, me and you, where we can uh, change money between accounts very easily uh, and it all appears nicely on an app. Effectively, what I'm talking about here is a sort of B2B or government to government and government to business um, uh, uh, approach where we can unlock this data for future innovation, possibly down the line, look at that uh, relationship with the citizen themselves. So, you know, I think there's definitely should be uh, an an inquiry, an investigation into what can we learn from the banking sector that we can apply to this wealth of data in, in the public sector so we can make good the uh, aspirations of politicians, as as they say on both sides, to use AI for civic benefit. So, I mean, flipping all of this around, if the question was, how do we use AI for civic benefit and really looked into it, there are a number of things that we can do uh, almost immediately. Um, and... I would also say we won't be able, you know, we won't be able to do uh, get AI for good if we didn't do those things. It would just still be a politician getting up there and their aspirations not being realised. Okay, so we've talked about the policy aspirations. What good could come from better utilisation, sharing, and exchange of data? We've talked about perhaps there being some form of policy intervention, maybe legislative, maybe not remains to be seen but clearly there are lessons from other sectors we've talked less about the institutional setup and maybe maybe your answer will be that this isn't necessary in a place like london this is the role that you and your colleagues here are playing um but is there something that needs to happen to make local councils to make local jurisdictions cooperate with each other in data sharing initiatives is there something is there a corralling function that doesn't exist is there a body that should be established in order to facilitate this i think examples in the past of where government has said to, to local authorities you know we will mandate you to cooperate you know <laughs> um, sometimes haven't haven't worked out quite as planned i remember there was something uh, you know sort of years ago i think it was something like the, the duty to cooperate or, or or something like that in local government uh, which never really made uh, sense to me. I think most uh, taxpayers would say we'd we'd expect you to do that. Now we don't have any powers to mandate local authorities in London to collaborate uh, on on things, but we certainly want to create the environment where more of them do more together. And I'm interested in having the leadership that says let's build the coalition of the willing. And remember, we don't need. With data, we don't need all local authorities to do the same thing. We need a critical mass because, of course, you can do things like modelling based on more data. Um, So you can get a lot of the benefits of data without doing it all the time everywhere. We just need more of them to do more. Um, So... What's the role of government in all of this? I think certainly a new national data strategy should look at um, some uh, creating a partnership framework with leading local authorities uh, to do more with data together. Certainly, they could provide some incentives on how we create better data infrastructure uh, together. So that would require a little bit of money. 
But the benefits of this, of doing that, even with a marginal amount of investment, um, are, would I think make a, a real difference. And let, let's look at one area where I think most local authorities are in the same place. When I go and talk to local authorities and indeed businesses in London um, about how we can share data, the top issue is how we can share data together for climate change impact or net zero and and retrofit challenges. Um, for many companies, uh, the data that they hold on that is uh, not very valuable to them, uh, unless it's their, their core business, um, and is shareable. Um, but they need a purpose to share it. So that's up to the, the city working with them to set that out. For local authorities, they have lots and lots of data that could be used for this. And... Our ability to create a a funnel for the questions, the critically enabling questions that solve the problems in, in our city, I think mobilizes people to come together and offer up their data into what? Into a new data platform uh, of the type that we're creating here in London, which is called the Data for London platform, uh, riffing slightly on, on Transport for London there. But uh, effectively, that acts uh, not as a smart city sort of data lake uh, uh, that you see elsewhere in the world, but more like a library of where important data is in the city and what it is. So just like a library index, if it was data that is should be openly published, you can go and get it from the bookshelf. If it's data with personal or confidential characteristics, then it's something that you would have to write a form for and for it to be accepted and therefore you could do it. And that creates the basis of connecting lots and lots of organisations to collaborate around data uh, together. So those kind of approaches that we're doing here on a regional level aren't that expensive. Um, There's more costs that you put into the process to make sure it's safe, ethical, responsible and there's good governance around it than the actual technology behind it. But what that starts to do is to free up that data so that we can tackle these big challenges like net, net zero. So um, just just on, on net zero, so you've got a total bill potentially in London of retrofitting the city of 100 billion, which is, I think, a conservative estimate uh, for that. How could data uh, uh, shared between local authorities, landlords, and other businesses uh, change that? Well, by having data uh, either from traditional sources or embedding sensors in buildings, you are able to create new business models and new markets. A 100 billion bill for retrofit is not going to come from the public sector or from the government. It's going to come through private investment in collaboration with the government. So creating the foundations for these new models to be developed creates new markets. And that's a really, really exciting opportunity. Imagine a situation where we could identify, let's say, 120,000 homes in London that were built between 1931 and 1933 because they're of a particular build and they needed particular remedial action. They cross local authority boundaries, but uh, local government working together could put that up in one or two or three job lots that is attractive 
to the market and through the use of data create business models for that investment to be paid off so whether government antes up a bit and private sector antes up a bit or the consumer antes up a bit it creates almost like a business model for a retrofit mortgage that you would layer on top of something else now i'm just riffing on something that you know uh you know uh, the kind of thing that that we could conceive of but all of these things is aren't going to happen without that collaboration between local authorities data models about energy um enumeration sharing and working together with the private sector i think that's how we're going to meet the net zero challenge so you mentioned in the middle of that theo when talking about data for london about the need to design these initiatives in an ethical responsible way so if i could just pick up that point and move on to the sort of second half of the questions I wanted to throw at you about these sort of the trade-offs that are implied and the political choices that are implied by the sorts of schemes that, that you are describing, particularly if the next government were to do this at scale, which is clearly what you're calling for. The most obvious of these is that tension with data protection standards. There's obviously ways in which I think you have spoken about in the past that these can be tackled through things like data minimization and various different standards for um, for sharing between different authorities. But is that always possible that you can square the circle between data sharing and upholding those standards? Or do we have to accept a greater permissiveness in sharing our personal data in return for better and more efficient public services? It's a really good question, but let's 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 look at the law. Um, GDPR is a really good law for innovation. Uh, for safe innovation, in my view. Um, If we go beyond uh, just seeing it as a law, politicians always like to talk about laws. It's a box-ticking exercise. We don't want a box-ticking exercise, do we? Um, But you look at the spirit behind GDPR, defining the purpose of what you're using someone's data for is a fundamental uh, principle. Um, That... I think combats one of the big fears about the uh, smart city movement that grew up over the last decade, that it was a sort of somehow open-ended data harvest of your data that, you know, uh, sort of evil tech geniuses or, or bad actors in the state could kind of run away with or and do, uh, you know, sort of tyrannical things uh, with. Um, fundamentally, um the processes behind GDPR, as I say, uh, purpose, data minimization, um, the impulsion to uh, work in the open, um, these fundamental tenets when uh, we engage with citizens are the kind of things that people react uh, very warmly to. And most people, when our engagements, people are around data, and by this I mean the vast majority are interested in the trade-off. My data for what? A better NHS? Cheaper pharmaceuticals? The benefits of these need to be clearly communicated with citizens in a constant dialogue. Um, And so that does place new um, uh, responsibilities upon city leadership if they're doing things based more and more on these kinds of data. But those benefits are 
really, really important uh, to citizens and indeed uh, our country. And there's some really good examples of this kind of engagement going on with the NHS, talking to people about, you know, some of their most sensitive information, their health data and engagements that have happened, you know, over days with representative groups of Londoners where people walked into the room, perhaps a little bit sceptical, have walked out saying, okay, if you can provide the right, right framework and you can ensure that there's dialogue here, yeah, I'm up for that trade-off. And I think there's also vast potential here with forms of data that people don't, you know, that aren't as sensitive to people. So environmental data, when we poll Londoners and we talk to them, should there be a sensor here around air quality or, you know, energy management are overwhelmingly uh, in favour of that. The question for us is how do we create a system where the sharing or exchange of that data gives something back to the person, that they get cheaper energy bills or they get a payment for the installation of a solar panel? How can that be done in a safe and and trusted way? I think this is all really, really important parts of the equation. And that, in a sense, isn't a data question. That's a design question. Well, on that design question, then you talked earlier about the transformation in open data that allowed companies like CityMapper to arise or indeed to allow large companies like Google Maps to develop their services that we all use on a day-to-day basis. If we think of that design question and take it away from the personal and more to the, the authority level, was that the, is that the right policy choice to allow private companies to develop business models, so some of those are pretty big like Google, to develop their business models using open access to the data that TfL holds or indeed the London Authority more broadly? Or should should the London Authority and other authorities at a municipal level be looking to monetize that data in some other way to profit from it themselves and generate income? Well, I always say that, um, and this is a question that TfL considered um, deeply in 2013, um, and they came to the conclusion uh, that um, that setting up a team to commercialize data would probably uh, cost more than they would have brought in um, uh, at the time. And I think there's some truth to that because there were, you know, back back in the day of open data when these feeds were going out, there wasn't a price on data um, in the way there is uh, now. So I think it's a live question, but I think we've moved. Uh, in this decade from an era of open data publishing, you know, 2010 to 2018, let's say, to an era where there's much more shareable, non-open data. And also the demands of the data publishers are greater from the business community, academics and others, where they're asking people like uh, City Hall or... Or, or TFL, can you publish the data in this format rather than that format? Can you change your API in this way or that way? And that puts a cost back on the publisher. So I think we've come to a point where you know we're, we're saying, yes, we uh, have retained our commitment to publishing open data where it should be published. But in terms of responding to the demands of business to you know take on the costs of of that, which is, I think, what you're inferring in in your question uh, as well. Um, I think we come to a point where 
we need to start thinking about a charging framework that then goes back to fund the data capabilities of cities themselves. Because, you know, so sorry to say, really, uh, uh, but everyone who works in data in any organisation will say this, we, we probably don't come top of the list uh, when it comes to the divvying out of uh, of, of monies uh, in in budgets, we have a war for talent. So, ta- you know, getting great data scientists uh, is difficult and we rely on partnerships um, with others. So the kind of need to ensure that cities have that kind of core investment in data capabilities also, I think, comes through that engagement with business. And just to play devil's advocate, you've talked about, the and you talked on this podcast already, but you've talked in the articles that you've written about how city mappers are a good example of of businesses that can grow and in some sense i guess a bit of a i don't know whether i'd call it quite industrial strategy but at least some form of economic strategy where the public sector action has helped create an ecosystem in the private sector domestically but we haven't seen i mean maybe i'm wrong here but i i don't know that we've seen many city mapper equivalents in recent years is that partly down to the dynamic that you're describing the shift away from the open data per se model to a slightly more complicated model? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, there's only so much you can do with 80 live feeds of transport data in, 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 in London. Um, I think it kind of reaches a, reaches a natural limit. So it um, has to move to a different something else. Yeah, we need, we need another I mean, I think, I think where we've gone to, I mean, those, those are live feeds like, where's the bus? Uh, you know, where's the tube? How can I plan my journey? Um, and I think that has sort of t- tremendous benefits that we probably haven't, you know, fully quantified on how easy it is from a, for a Londoner to get from A to B, you know, for work or leisure. That said, we're, we're moving into an era where there's more shareable, or from about 2018 onwards, we've moved to an era where there's more shareable data that requires a data sharing agreement and to give you a personalized service what we need uh is well what what's happening is people create digital and data services based on the combination of that open and and non-open data so we can tailor things around either you individually or using you know personas people like you so there are a vast array of whether they're sort of urban data services or private data services that rely on precisely that. Okay, well, I think that the the area we're straddling into here, Theo, gets to, I think, the question of nationality. Uh, there's been a live debate around on the AI side with foundation models over the past year being everything that everyone's been getting excited about, this idea of sovereign capabilities. Um and I guess that debate in AI is, you know, could be made for any part of uh, the tech ecosystem, certainly when it comes to large data resources. And there's always some controversy when large US tech companies are awarded public contracts that will play out, well, not always, but often there is. And so I suppose I'm interested in your just broader view of whether nationality matters in tech. Does it matter in the future where London boroughs or TFL or some other part of the London Authority awarding contracts to a to a large US tech company rather than a small British startup provider. Does I mean, it matter? I, I mean, it does matter in the sense that we've seen in other parts of the tech sector that 
you know, a change in national policy can have ramifications. So there was concern about Chinese technology that started about two or three years ago, which certainly had an impact on the telecommunications industry. So, you know, um, international uh, always has a level of um, kind of, you know, smaller risk attached to it. But um, I'm more concerned about big versus small. And where we've been with this government is it's just whatever the rhetoric about, like, you know, startups and scale-ups and politicians love to talk about that, um, is that we have seen in large chunks of um, the, the, the tech sector, particularly in local government, particularly in government, is big companies winning big, long contracts, which they then renew. Now, first wave of those contracts may well see this uh, with the NHS will be incredibly innovative but then after a while they become less innovative and more driven by the uh, concerns of their sales department than any innovation from that company uh, itself and I think where we've got to is big dominance of big tech in local government and I think there's a great opportunity for UK startups and scale-ups to be much more involved in the shaping um, and creation of better services to our citizens if we could open up that market. So, um, yeah, okay, live debate about big US tech companies. Why don't we create any more unicorns uh, in this in this country? Uh, why do so many of our potential unicorns exit um, before becoming unicorns? You know, those, those are big, big national issues. But let's remember, we have the power to shape our own markets and get innovators who know the know and use these services to innovate, and we're not doing it. And just to be clear, then, what does that mean? More of a policy towards building, building bespoke technology with startups and scale-ups, rather than a sort of buying an off-the-shelf product you might get from a larger technology. Firm. That's that's a really good question, you know. And it's like a leader of an organisation should see it as a corporate or leader of public authority, should see it as a civic question. What technology mix do I have? Do I have the capability to create? Does my Do my teams have the capability to create things? Are they intelligent clients? Or is it for us to uh, uh, bring in an outside a company to run this uh, back office service? What is the technology mix is a civic question, but so often it's treated as an IT question. And why it's important in the digital age is data lies behind this. And also your kind of agency, if you don't have teams of people who can do these things, you're probably not going to be buying the right products in the first place. So again, questions local authorities have, but actually a question for all organizations. Yeah, and I just, I think, have we already moved into the territory where if you are a buyer of IT services at local government, or, but also probably at a lot of national government departments or agencies as well, you tend not, a bit like hiring the big four in auditing, you tend not to get fired for, get, for, for, for bringing a big player. Yeah, the, it's, the, it's, the it's, kind it's, of like never get fired for uh, buying IBM. Exactly. Yeah. Is that where we are? Yeah, I think there's a large element of, uh, I politely called it contract management, you know, go in with a big firm and that de-risks my my purchase. But does it really 
help your organization face the problems that it has and if one of the one of the trade-offs of of that de-risking is it's difficult for you to gain access to your own data or ensure that your data is stewarded properly by that i don't mean like it's unsafe but actually is it kept in good quality if you can't provide that reassurance then that's negative trade-off Thank you then, Theo. Just one final question. You've been extremely generous with your time, but just just to conclude, because we end up talking about, and we've, we've skirted around this throughout the conversation, but on AI, yeah. if you were to look ahead to the next five years of, of, of you know, digital government in London, what is the big prize? What, what, is, you know, what are the, some of the examples that you see about how AI will transform the services that Boroughs here are delivering TFL, London authorities, other services. How? Wh- wh- what should we be excited about in the next few years? I, s- I think with emerging technologies, you can see tremendous amount, range of applications uh, arise. You will have uh, from, uh, on the one hand, I think you'll see more uh, things in the public realm, what you'll say, augmented or virtual reality, a kind of clickable environment. I think that will really stimulate uh, high street retail and the cultural experience. I think people will probably receive emerging technologies first through culture and games. Um, in the public sector, I'll, I think we'll see uh, a tremendous amount of AI in its traditional sense, automation. So I think there will be loads of automated uh, public services which will uh, bring quite a lot of uh, efficiencies to the so-called back office. However, that then creates a uh, organizational pressure of like how you fit the human into all of that so i i think the kind of low-hanging fruit is that kind of big automation drive there but at the other end of course we're going to see generative ai being used more and more it's going to change the way websites are created how people search for things um we're already seeing use cases in london around translation so um okay well you've talked about some of the more the more the sort of i guess it'd be termed narrower uh, models of AI and the benefits that they can bring. But what about Gentive AI? Since ChatGPT launched about a year ago, it's pretty much all that the policy bubble in tech has been talking about. So where do you see that happening in London? So there are two main impacts of gener- generative AI on London that have immediately been seen. And they're not necessarily in the kind of field where you go like, oh, this use case has popped up and bubbled up over here. It's made a transformational difference. Uh, the first has been uh, in 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 a policy area, which is the creative industries. It is much easier for people to create gen AI images. um, And that really challenges our creative sector. One in every five jobs in London is or is linked to the creative sector. So we've done a vast amount of work to try and understand the impact that might have on rights holders and copyright. Um, And secondly, is a sort of uh, question of community cohesion. Of course, there is uh, misinformation. Sadiq as uh, mayor, there was a deep fake about Sadiq during the uh, the recent uh, Middle East crisis uh, on Remembrance Day. The question about that isn't so much like does it undermine our democratic institutions or particular leaders. It's more like as the public become more aware that all images could be deep faked. 
they become perhaps more sceptical about truth and uh, veracity of established institutions. And so the way those arguments play out, in a, in a sense, in the audio and visual field may well set the stage for actually the dialogue we'll have over the development of, of large language models, which are the more complicated bit of Gen AI, which are still obviously on a on a journey. Yeah, and I think we may see some of that playing out next year. We've obviously got the US elections, the European Parliament elections, and maybe a UK, well, probably a UK general election as well. So I don't know if we're at the point where Gentive AI will make a big splash in terms of generating misinformation during those, but I suspect it will certainly play at least a role for the reasons you pointed out with uh, Sadiq Khan, but also we saw a, a deep fake of Keir Starmer, I think, during the uh, party yeah. conference as well. So it's already starting to nibble at the edges. Whether we'll see a Cambridge Analytica-type event next year remains to be seen. But Theo, just to thank you very much for for really taking us through that as a real sort of tour de force across uh, local and municipal government and how you see see that playing out at the moment, but also the potential for reform, both in the public sector, but also in the wider tech ecosystem in the UK. And I would encourage uh, anyone who's listening, do go on to Medium and read Theo's article. It goes into a lot of the issues we've talked about today, but also uh, goes a bit further in certain areas. So really good read. So I encourage you to take a look at that. Um, And just thank you very much uh, for listening today. If you want to uh, check in with the Global Council team on any of the issues we've raised today, please check in the podcast notes or on www.global-council.com. Thank you and goodbye.